everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book By Searching by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International. As you remember, last time we were reading Chapter 11, Part 2, and then I started reading Chapter 12, so I hope that's not confusing to you, but we're going to finish up Chapter 12 today. Even into the business life of the city, an influence was going out. A lawyer asked what had caused the change in his stenographer. Her answer had an effect on him. More and more I saw the wonderful potential of the work when first things were kept first. There had been corner clubs in other cities, but the temptation is to let them sink into merely social service efforts. Young life must have an outlet. I soon saw that, so we had picnics, seaside corn roast, hikes on Saturday afternoon, and in winter we had a stunt night for the girls only. This was one of the most hilarious evenings I ever spent. The stunts were all wholesome fun and revealed much brains and talent. I myself had opened it up, dressed up as as a cartoon version of an old school morm. I announced that the students of my boarding school were about to put on a program for their relatives and friends. Most of the girls had never seen me lay aside the dignity of my office just for fun, and it tickled their fancy to find that I could enjoy a joke as much as the next one. The stunt night broke the ice between me and a certain girl for whom I was fishing in vain for several weeks. It was only a short time afterwards that she accepted the Lord in my office. But all our parties were threaded through with the love of him and a deadly earnest that others might find him too. I think that's the secret. A merely social club helps nobody very much, for it does not offer any solution to the problems of life. My noontime circulating among the lunchers were to me the most difficult part of my work. Always shy about meeting strangers, I also had this unfortunate background of having so fierce resented personal work in my own earlier days. It made me timid to barge into others' lives. I always felt I was a failure in those noon contexts where gifted evangelists could no doubt have reaped a big harvest. But I made friends and had their confidence. The sins and temptations which they gradually opened up to me about were appalling and led us into many unexpected adventures. Let me tell you about two of them. Edith was a clever young girl who had come from England to get work in Canada. She lived with an aunt, and she met and fell in love with a young man. We followed her joy through the day she appeared in the lunchroom with her new diamond ring to the time when she said goodbye to the office work and invited us all to her wedding. She had her dress and trousseau and had resigned her job. The wedding date was set and the invitations had been mailed. A night or so before the wedding, her telephone rang. Edith heard a strange woman's voice on the wire. Is it true that you are going to be married to Mr. So-and-so in a couple of days, the voice asked. Yes, answered Edith, wondering. I am very sorry, but I must tell you that he is already married. I am his wife. I have our wedding certificate here. Can you imagine the shock of this to this young English girl? The shame of it. The heartbreak. For she had given her love unconditionally. But you cannot imagine the worse. Her aunt, humiliated at having to cancel the wedding in a towering rage, ordered the girl out of the house. She would have no such thing of shame under her roof, she said. Out on the streets, homeless and wild with grief and heartache, where would Edith go? Her church? They were her aunt's type and would probably hold the same views. Corner club. She crept in, broken, distraught, and then found herself clasped in Mother Finch's broad bosom. Corner club protected her, loved her, found her a home, and led her to the Lord. She proved to be an exceptionally gifted girl. And it was only a year or two before she had earned enough money to go back to England, where her mother still lived. 
It was a soul saved and a young life saved as well. The most exciting story, perhaps, was that of Flossie. A knock on my office door came one afternoon, and I opened it to see a fashionably dressed woman standing there. Miss Miller, she asked, may I have a word with you? I have been to your club room several times and admire the work that you are doing very much. There is a young girl named Flossie in my boarding house who needs help. May I tell you about her? I led the woman into the lounge, and we sat while she talked. Flossie's a nice young thing from the prairies. Her mother is a widow, I believe, who sent her to Vancouver to study to be a nurse. She's a pretty girl and seems to have a lot of dates with young doctors, you know. I guess she neglected her studies. Anyway, she failed her year, is out of the hospital, and has no money. I am anxious that the temptations of the big city do not suck her under. Do you think your corner club could help her? I told her you were very nice, despite um your long hair and um your long skirts. This with an eye to each. The fashions in 1927 had shrunk skirts until they barely reached the knee. Although I had shortened my dresses, I still felt that modesty required that the knees be covered. My hair should be long for China of those days, so I had never cut it. I was much amused at her two ahums, but boldly ignored these little difference of opinion between us. We will certainly do anything we can to help Flossie, but we're not an employment agency. But, but you do have dishes to wash and dry, urged the lady. I thought if you could employ her here, it would give you a chance to talk to her and perhaps steady her. I'll consult our business manager, I replied. Leave me your telephone number and I'll call you. We do have dishes to wash, but our help is usually voluntary. Our budget does not allow for much paid labor. Mother Finch, of course, was enthusiastic about taking in another young life to influence for Christ. It was agreed to employ her for a week or so while we sought to get her regular employment. So Flossie was brought to us. She turned out to be a happy little chatterbox. Most of the time she was busy in the kitchen, of course, but there came an hour when I was able to have her alone in the office. I presented the claims of the Lord Jesus for her heart and life. She listened with tears running down her face and accepted everything. When she had left, Mother Finch came in to inquire about the results. Well, I answered slowly, I'm not satisfied. She was certainly touched and willing to follow me in prayer and accept Christ as her Savior. She wept, but but somehow I cannot believe she's born again. Something did not seem to click, if you know what I mean. Although we were not an employment agency and certainly not a rescue mission, Still, it was possible at Corner Club to announce to the girls that a certain one needed work and to ask that the members keep their eyes open for suitable vacancy. This we did, and Flossie was not long with us before a noon-hour girl named Helen came to our office. Do you suppose, Isabel, she said, that this girl Flossie would be willing to take a poorly paid job until something better turns up? My mother has had a stroke and is completely paralyzed. She can't even turn in bed. I'm an office worker, and I can't afford a trained nurse to care for her during the day while I'm away. But Flossie has had some training, and I would give her room and board and a little pocket money if she would come and care for my mother. We called Flossie in, and she accepted the position. She would be free every evening, and we urged her to come to our Tuesday supper and service and said goodbye. As our lives were full of unexpected cases, it was not possible to follow up Flossie very closely. Summer came, and I was to have two weeks' vacation. I chose to spend it at the Furs. A few days before I was to leave, I had a telephone call from Helen. Isabel, have you heard about Flossie, she asked. No, not a word, I said in alarm. Please tell me. Well, she's in the hospital. 
She began to act and talk strangely here, and one evening she had a sort of a spell. So I called in a doctor. He sent her to the old hospital and now says she's insane. I don't believe it myself. In fact, I think she's acting a part to get away from here. It's a bit quiet far here, I guess. I feel she's been accustomed to hit the pace, you know. Anyway, I wish you would go and see her. Her doctor might believe you. He won't listen to me. Here is his name and telephone number. I was staggered at this news, but promised to go and see Flossie. Helen hung up, and I called the doctor's number. A crisp, professional voice answered. Doctor, this is Miss Miller, superintendent of the Vancouver Girls Corner Club. I believe you're treating Flossie. Yes, he said shortly. Well, our club is interested in her, and I've been asked to go and see her at the hospital if you will allow it. It will do no good, Miss Miller, came the answer quickly. She would not know you. She recognizes no one, and I have put her in the violent ward. Well, doctor, the friends with whom she was staying feel that she is just acting a part. An exclamation of anger stopped me. Miss Miller, I've been a specialist in mental cases for many years. Do you presume to tell me I cannot recognize insanity? He was clearly insulted. No, doctor, I beg your pardon. But for the sake of her friends, would you give me the permission to visit Flossie? My pronouncement would quiet them. He gave an exclamation of impatience. All right, be at the hospital on Saturday afternoon at two. I'll give orders for you to be admitted. And he slammed down the receiver. Down went my phone, too, and up went my heart to the Lord. Now, Lord, I'm in for it. I have a new search on now. Can you control the high, strong bunch of nerves which is in me and enable me to face an insane person? I think most people must have a private horror, a phobia about some things. Most women fear snakes. I've known a big man almost go to pieces at the news that a rat was near. A famous scholar of our generation admits to phobia regarding insects. My own private fear has always been insanity. I don't like snakes or rats, but they do not set my nerves a jingle like the word insane. Lord, I prayed. When I felt I should go down into the cellar to see if Miss Mack had hung herself there, I asked you for the nerve to go, and I didn't get it. Of course, you knew she wasn't there and that I didn't need to look. But still, can you nerve me to face insanity? Saturday afternoon will be my proving time. I was to leave Saturday night for the first, so I was packed and ready for the train. Leaving my baggage at the corner club, I proceeded to the hospital at two o'clock in the afternoon and inquired for the ward where Flossie was. It was in the basement. Across the corridor were heavy locked doors, and in front of them at the side was a desk with two nurses in attendance. On the other side of the door, someone was singing a ragtime song at the top of her lungs. I went up to the nurses and said, please, may I see Flossie? The nurses looked at one another. I'm sorry, the elder of the two. It's against the rules. No one's allowed to see her. But I was told that I might if I came at this hour, I said. Again, they exchanged glances. Then the younger nurse said to me, She's violent. That's her singing now. The youthful voice was rollicking on. The doctor told me he would give orders to let me in, I protested. And that was the magic word. Oh, they said, scrambling through some papers on the desk. Yes, here's an order from Miss Miller. I'm Miss Miller. All right, step this way. The nurse took a big bunch of keys and opened the corridor door, ushering me into the aisles on the other side. Small cells lined in this corridor on both sides, and each door was locked. The cells were beneath ground level, but had one iron-barred window high up near the ceiling level with the ground outside. 
My heart was beating so violently I felt dizzy and sick. But before I knew what was going to happen, the nurse had unlocked the cell, pushed me in alone, and I heard her lock the door behind me. Flossie stood with her back to the door, looking up through the little barred window and shouting her song. She was in a disheveled mess that would not be a kindness to describe. At the sound of the key in the door, she whirled around like a wild animal about to spring on its prey. But as soon as she saw me, she went limp. She blinked stupidly for a moment and then said, Miss Mellow. Yes, Flossie dear, I answered. Going forward and taking her in my arms, I kissed her. I only just learned that you were sick. I've come to see you. Get into bed, dear, and then we can talk. Like a lamb, she climbed onto her cot. I sat at the foot of it, as there was no chair in the cell, nothing but the iron bed. I talked about the corner club, trying to draw her memory back to the quiet things and to the Lord. She answered each question intelligently, and only once did she exhibit anything strange. I was telling her of some little corner club incident and said, Mother Finch, you remember who she is, Flossie, don't you? Yes, came from the young face on the pillow. And then there followed an expression of cunning. And I know you, she cried emphatically. I went cold all down my spine, but ignored it, continuing my quiet chit-chat. I told her to trust in the Lord and promised to write her mother. I'm going on my vacation, I said, and will come and see you as soon as I get back. I stayed about 15 minutes and then knocked loudly on the door, hoping the nurse would hear. She came at length, and I left, leaving Flossie still lying quietly in bed. When I got back to the corner club, I telephoned the doctor. Yes, he said. Well, how did you get on? She knew me immediately, doctor, and called me by name. There was a staggered silence at the other end of the line. Then I heard him say to himself, Well, I'll be. To me, he said, Miss Miller, please tell me exactly what happened right from the first. After I'd done so, he said, How soon can you visit her again? I'm leaving in a few hours for vacation, doctor, and I'll be gone for two weeks, but we'll call you as soon as I return. Do that, he said earnestly, and we hung up. I felt that Helen must be right. Flossie was playing a part for some reason. If I had known it was so important, I would have given up my vacation to attend her, but I didn't. In my next telephone conversation with the doctor on my return from the furs, he told me she had been sent to an insane asylum outside Vancouver. He was quite indifferent whether I visited her or not. This time she won't know you, he said, and he gave me permission for a visit with her. Looking back at this incident after nearly 30 years, and having had more than two decades of experience with devil-worshipping mountain tribes, I'm inclined to think that Flossie was demon-possessed. The devil had hoodwinked educated America into thinking he is a myth, and he is working havoc unrecognized. My reason for believing this is twofold. First, I found that the mere presence of a consecrated Christian in a demon-haunted house was enough to force back those powers. My entrance into that hospital cell brought with it the power of my master, and the demon force was temporarily quelled. Second, that look of cunning when she affirmed, unasked, that she knew me was the very same that I have seen in the face of a demon-possessed tribal girl just before the demon was cast out. And the compulsion to confess recognition is similar to what took place in our Lord's day. But as superintendent of the corner club, I knew as yet nothing of these matters. Now I felt I must visit Flossie in the asylum. Again, I was terrified at the thought. But as God had taken care of me in the hospital, he would surely help me in this second step. So one afternoon found me arriving by bus at the famous institution, which I never dreamed I would ever see. It was a huge place several stories high. 
As I approached the large entrance, men patients behind the iron bars of a veranda screamed out to me and thrust their arms through the bars as if trying to reach me. Not very soothing to the nerves. Instead, I was ushered first into the office of the resident physician. He was a young man, and as I advanced to his desk, he exclaimed, Why, it is Miss Miller. It was my turn to be astonished. Isabel Miller of Arts 22, University of British Columbia, isn't it, he repeated, shaking hands cordially. Why, yes. How do you know, I queried. He laughed. I was an undergraduate a year or so behind you. What have you been doing since then? We had a little chat, and my work at the Corner Club brought up the name of Flossie. There must have been several thousand patients in the, this place, so I asked, Would you possibly know Flossie? Would I, he returned. I'll never forget the night they brought her in. It took four strong men to hold her. What do you think? Is she incurable? No, he answered thoughtfully. This type is brought on by dissipation, and with the use of modern drugs, we can often effect a cure. Did she talk very much? That's the first sign of this condition coming on, excessive talkiveness. She'll be here two years at least, though, and then there'll likely be a recurrence later on. I'm going to stop here, and then we'll finish it later. Uh, thank you for listening. I love you. I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.